there's an American truism that people just say over here. I don't know what they say in England, but uh, they say, you know, the, the last things you should ever talk about are religion and politics. And my entire career is based on both. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. I'm delighted to say I've got a very special guest on the show today. It is Joel Rosenberg. Joel is the author of numerous books, both fiction and nonfiction, often focusing on Israel and the Middle East. And we're here to talk about his own faith journey and also his latest book on the show. Joel, welcome along to the program. Great to be with you, Sam. Thank you so much for having me on. We always like to start by hearing a bit about a person's early life. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and life growing up. I understand it was really your parents' uh, journey to Christianity. It had quite a profound effect on you as a teenager, didn't it? Yeah, tremendous uh, impact, a uh, game-changing moment. Uh, so my f- you need to know a little context of my family. Uh, my father is Jewish. My mom is not. My father is a first-generation American. My mother uh, isn't a member, but could be part of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Her family came from England um, um, before, you know, this, you know, in, in the 1700s. So two totally different people, both from ethnic backgrounds. Um, my father's family, as Orthodox Jews, escaped out of Russia around 1906. Actually, they came in a couple of different waves. Um, 06, 07, um, settled in Brooklyn. Uh, like any good Jewish family, when they come to America, they settle in Brooklyn and uh, Woody Allen and you know all the rest. So uh, just a total cultural clash in my family, except that they both my parents were agnostics when they met and fell in love and they didn't really care. They, did, they, they cared someday of found, finding God, but they didn't think that anything in their own background had 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 helped them, so they got married in 1965. Uh, they had me in 1967. They were searching. Uh, they read the Quran. Uh, they read the Bhagavad Gita. They tried to read the New Testament. It didn't make sense to them, but they were searching. And the short version for this purpose is: in 1973, uh, they visited a church. My mom heard the gospel clearly for the first time and just got electrified. That's it. That's the truth. That's what we've been looking for. And uh, she became a follower of Jesus Christ. My father, not so much. He, the only thing he really remembered the rabbi saying (laughs) was that Jesus ain't it. (laughs) So, but he was willing to join my mom in a small group Bible study. And they went with a group of other couples through the gospel according to Luke. And, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Messiah. Now, not every Jewish person that reads the New Testament, reads the Gospels, immediately believes or sometimes ever believes. But miraculously, my father came to faith that he really wrestled it, but concluded Jesus is the Messiah. That The challenge for him is that he thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul who believed this. He'd never heard of a Jew who believed in Jesus. He'd never met a Jew who believed in Jesus. And in 1973, there weren't that many. So this was a huge decision for him. And over time, over the next few years, I came to faith in Jesus as well. And so 
That was a spiritual revolution, which in, in the American context was part of, we didn't know it at that time, but was part of what became known as the Jesus revolution uh, or the, the Jesus movement, where the Holy Spirit was just being poured out in the early 1970s, and millions of people, including thousands of Jews, were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing period of, of history, as you say, the, the Jesus movement. You had uh, Jesus on the front cover of Time magazine, didn't you? And even even people like Bob Dylan releasing gospel music and that kind of era. Really right. amazing to, 19, to look back. In the 1960s, Sam, Time had put a cover story on it, is, um, is God Dead? And by the early 1970s, it was the Jesus revolution, all these people turning not only to God, but his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it, it was huge and it was dramatic. It didn't mean everybody in America was getting saved, but it, it was it was a big cultural moment. And and even people who didn't believe, who were skeptics, could see something was happening. And, and our family was a part of that. So how did your faith grow and mature since then? Did you, you know, looking back, have there, have there been times in your life where, you know, you've had real doubts, it's been difficult, or has it has it been plain sailing since you accepted Christ? What's it been like? Well, I don't know anybody whose life in Christ has been plain sailing. Uh, certainly mine wasn't. Uh, partly in high school, just trying to wrestle through, do I believe this because my parents believe it, and they've been so profoundly touched and changed and blessed, or, or do I really believe it? And so that was a... That was a, a maybe a crisis moment in my high school years, but as I as I really did lock in and say this is it, this is true, um, I got excited not just to believe it, uh, but to start to talk to talk about it to my friends. Uh, doing that in my senior year of high school and and uh, joining a campus ministry at, at Syracuse University um, throughout my undergraduate years and then and then becoming a professional, getting married and then moving to Washington D.C. and trying to live life as a professional, as a follower of Christ, how, what's that air fuel mixture? How do you do it? Um, it's very different from being involved in a campus ministry. And uh, But the central theme, I would say, as part of it was, why am I Jewish? Why do I have a name Joel Rosenberg and I believe in Jesus? Because in the grand scheme, it, it's fairly rare, not, you know, not that no, but no other Jews believe, but, uh, you know, historically, you know, we know from John chapter one, Jesus, he as the Messiah, he came to his own, his own received him not. So why was I receiving him? And what responsibilities did I have as a Jewish follower of Jesus um, to love my fellow Jews, make sure they at least had the opportunity to hear the truth of the gospel, the good news of, of the Messiah having come to us. Um, and what about my neighbors in the Middle East? What about Arabs? What about Muslims? What about Palestinians? What? So yeah, I loved Israel, but I also had a process. Um, I know theologically God loves Israel's neighbors and even her enemies, but how do I do that? And um, so let me stop there. But yeah, that was that that was a that was a process. Yeah. For uh, you know, well, there's any- there's loads there's loads to dig into that, and I'm looking forward to chatting a, a bit more about where the rubber hits the road on 
as you say, that's fine in theory that, that God calls us to love our enemies, but what does that look like in practice? So we'll, we'll get to that as we go through, but tell me a bit about um, your early career, because I understand your early career was, was in politics, and you mentioned there in life having to figure out exactly how your faith fits in, even with career. I imagine some people might think, oh, politics, that's a, that's a murky world. Does that bring up all sorts of ethical dilemmas if you're someone who's seeking to follow Jesus in the, in the messy and murky world of politics? What would you say to that? Yeah, well, yes. And I would say that there's an American truism that people just say over here. I don't know what they say in England, but uh, they say, you know, the, the last things you should ever talk about are religion and politics. And my entire career is based on both. <laughs> um, now, in Washington, it was a, um, both ideological and, and partisan. I mean, you can't be involved in politics and work for political leaders unless you choose a side. So that was part of my life and my work. Um, I helped um, a number of uh, presidential candidates and uh, even a, a, a former prime minister, then former prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, he didn't be, he didn't, I was on his comeback campaign in the year 2000. He didn't come back for nine more years, but he did go on to serve as the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, uh, just with me having nothing to do with it. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm a failed political consultant, uh, Sam, that was my first 10, 11 years of my, uh, career. So I do think there's a valuable and honorable place in the public square, uh, to engage in advancing um, uh, those values and those policies and principles. Now, I don't believe every pastor should be involved or every lay person. I mean, voting, yes, but I think there are people who have very strong convictions. I shouldn't be anywhere near a partisan environment. Why? Because I'm a preacher of the gospel. I'm a pastor. I'm a whatever. And therefore, I need to be able to minister to people in my community that are Republicans or Democrats or independents or none of the above. And I think that's valid. So we have to pray through what our what what is our unique role that God has called to us, not just what we think we want to do with our lives, right? What does the Lord want, right? Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do, but I'll do whatever you want me to do, right? That's the famous prayer. Uh, he prays it three times. So, so not wanting to do God's will, <laughs> uh, or to suffer the consequences of the path he has chosen for us. Saying that to God is not a sin, clearly, as long as we're willing to say, but I'll do whatever you called me to do. Hmm. And for some that's going into politics when you don't want to, some that's staying out of politics when you want to be involved in politics. Um, for me, it turned out that was just a, a laboratory, a, a learning ground. It was graduate school, except they were paying me. Uh, not that much, I would add, but, uh, but, those that that decade involved in politics sometimes at, the, at very you know interesting high levels made it easier even though I was not apparently good at it or at least the people I worked for they lost but then I became a political thriller writer and many most I would say people who write political thrillers you know bestsellers anyway they've never been involved in politics yes. and so you don't have to be but if you are or have been it does give you, uh, hopefully, the um, you know the grist for the mill. It gives you yeah. it gives you nuances um, of, of of what's authentic. You know, I yeah. it always bothers me if I watch a uh, political thriller movie 
and there's a helicopter landing on the lawn, the south lawn of the White House, and it's the wrong kind of helicopter. Like, it's not that hard to figure out which type of Sikorsky should be landing. Why can't Hollywood do it, right? It, those type of details, to me, they matter, and to anyone involved in politics. And that's why it's been interesting that my political thrillers, and now they're, you know, 5 million copies sold, but, you know, they're being read by world leaders, they're being read by vice presidents and secretaries of state and CIA directors and governors and senators and congressmen. And um, one, I hope the quality of the writing uh, and, the, and the stories, but also uh, there's, a, there's a level of realism and nuance and reality, even though it's fiction, yeah. it feels real and it's consistent with what people who are involved in politics that they already know it doesn't throw them out of the story yes well this brings us uh, nicely on to really how your writing really took off and we're coming up now aren't we to 20 years since 9-11 the anniversary of those terrible terror attacks and your story is really quite remarkable because before 9-11 you wrote what you thought was a fictional book now clearly you had experience in the political world and obviously that informed your writing nevertheless you wrote what was what you thought was fiction and it turned out around the time of 9-11, that fiction kind of came a reality. So tell us a little bit of those early days that really launched your career. And um, Because I think what's so remarkable about this story is that it didn't just happen once around the time of 9-11, it's happened since then, when things you've written that you thought were fictional seem to eerily almost come true. Yeah. Yeah, well, the first time was uh, was maybe the strangest so far. We, uh, I began writing my first political thriller in January of 2001, it was called the last jihad. Jihad is a an Arabic term, and it comes from the Quran. It means holy war. And uh, so I was writing this thriller, and the first page of the last jihad puts you inside the cockpit of a jet plane that's been hijacked by radical Islamist terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. And from that, op- those first opening pages and chapters of this of this attack airborne attack the fictional american president launches these attacks against radical islamist terror groups and cells but also as the book starts to head towards its conclusion the american president decides to remove saddam hussein from power in iraq now again i started writing that book almost nine months before 9-11. I didn't have some premonition that it was actually going to happen. I I was writing a thriller. I was writing something that seemed like, look, I I did believe that, um, you know, one of the themes in my novels is to misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. You know, the world was blindsided by Adolf Hitler. It shouldn't have been. He wrote Mein Kampf. We, we knew what he wanted, but, but obviously Neville Chamberlain and others didn't believe it. They didn't see it. They, didn't under, they misunderstood the nature and threat of Adolf Hitler, and they were blindsided by the, the invasion of Poland, by you know, the takeover of, the, of, of most of Europe, um, certainly of the Holocaust. But that was certainly true of the United States, too. We didn't understand the threat posed by Imperial Japan. We totally didn't see uh, the Pearl Harbor attack coming, nor did we see 9-11. And when you look back, you can all the intelligence agencies and historians can say, oh, there was so much data that told us these things were coming. This shouldn't, we should not have been blindsided. But we were because we because the leaders at the time misunderstood it or discounted what we now see as 
It was obvious. They were telling us Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait on August 2nd, 1990. You know, he massed hundreds of thousands of troops and everybody, at least in Washington, was saying, oh, he's just saber rattling. He's just trying to drive up the price of oil. And I kept thinking, I, he, I think he's going to invade. He says he's going to invade. Why don't we believe that? Sometimes you have to be, you have to have a lot of letters after your name, be super educated to, to, to discount all the, the obvious things that are coming. You say, oh no, that couldn't be. Sometimes it be. So anyway, I say that because um, my novel was not a prediction that this stuff was going to happen, but it was, but it was a, a war game. It was, I was extrapolating. If you look at what the leaders of the, of these radical groups in the Middle East say, and you think, well, if they really tried to go do it, and if they did it, what would it, what might it look like? And I got a lot closer to what happened than, than I would have wanted. I wasn't, you know, if I was trying to predict it, the book should have come out, you know, a couple of years earlier. Um, but, uh, but that first novel definitely put me on the map. Like it became a number one uh, bestseller. It was 11 weeks on the New York Times list. Um, I did 160 radio and TV and print interviews in just 60 days. And it set into motion a career where people would ask me, what do you think is coming in the Middle East? Like, what's happening now? What does it mean? But what's coming? And the new book, uh, uh, Enemies and Allies, is a nonfiction book. It's not, um, it's not fiction, but it is a political thriller in the sense that in my novels, my CIA agents or whoever, get they often get drawn in to the palaces and the leaders and they meet with the intelligence chiefs and sometimes the kings and crown princes to hear what's going on and try to work together to counter threats. As it turned out, I've been invited to meet with most of the leaders, kings, crown princes, presidents, and prime ministers, not just in Israel and the United States, but throughout the Arab Muslim world as a Jew, as an evangelical, as a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. So how, and just tell me a bit about how, what I tell in this book. Just tell me a bit about how that's possible, because I think a lot of people would think, okay, you're a Jew. Um, and now, again, this might be inaccurate and based on stereotypes, but I think a lot of Christians would think if you're a Jew going into a lot of Muslim nations, those nations might be very hostile towards you. Again, people might have the perception some of these Islamic nations would also be hostile to you for being an evangelical. So just help clear away some of the misconceptions. And an American and an yeah, Israeli. Exactly. So now clear that isn't the case, though. Yeah, all my identities suggest that would never happen, especially in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis were the leaders of the Zionism is racism movement. They have, you know, they have not so much been directly engaged in war against Israel, but certainly ideological and theological war against Jews, Israel, Zionism. So, yeah. So how did I get spending hours and hours and hours with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, asking him on the record, some of the most difficult questions about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, about the fact that there's not a single church on Saudi territory when there are 1.4 million foreign workers and their families who are Christians who work in the kingdom. The, the, the main answer to your question, Sam, is there is a sea change of thinking, of culture, of attitudes um, going on inside the Arab Muslim world. There is a fundamental rethinking in the Arab Muslim world at the leadership level and the grassroots, but particularly in the palaces, who 
in the light of the threat posed by Iran, not just to the United States and not just to Israel, but to the Arab world, the moderate Arab Sunni world, the Shia uh, Islamists in Iran, they pose an existential threat to these countries. And these Arab leaders are thinking, you know, as the United States clearly and painfully withdraws from the Middle East, we see it most painfully right now in Afghanistan, but even in, 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 in Iraq, uh, that led to genocide and all. As the United States, from the Trump side and the Biden said, side, are trying to withdraw, not only Israeli leaders, but Arab leaders are, are terrified. We are being left potentially to the wolves. So we have to rethink who are our enemies and who are our allies. We, we Arab leaders always thought that Israel was our enemy. But now we're thinking, well, if we had to go to war with Iran, we don't want to. But if we had to, can we trust the United States to be with us in that war? They're not so sure right now. But what country could you trust if you had to go to war with to stop Iran from going nuclear? You could trust the you could trust Israel to be with you. And so they're rethinking. And what about technology and tourism? And there's Israel is, yeah, Arab countries don't agree entirely with Israel on all their policies, particularly towards the Palestinians. But they say, wow, out of out of out of the air, out of thin air, it seems, and with under tremendous attack from every direction, Israel has created a high-tech, super prosperous, modern, forward-thinking, forward-looking society economy how are they doing it they don't have oil they don't have you know what what are they doing and how could we work together these are game-changing changes of thinking this is this is uh tectonic levels of changing and 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 so i have the opportunity a rare unique opportunity to sit with these leaders five meetings with king abdullah in jordan five meetings with president el-sisi in egypt uh, a meeting with Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of the UAE, with the first country to make peace with Israel in a quarter of a century. Two long meetings with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and others to ask them, what changes are you making? Why are you doing it? What's happening? Why the bad guys in the Middle East are getting more and more dangerous, but you guys are making peace or moving in that direction with Israel and these are two cross currents, two stories that don't seem to go together. And yet, um, and most Americans and most Brits and others are not paying attention. COVID and other issues have caused us to be very inward focused and understandably. But while we've all been like focused on COVID, health, economy, other issues in the United States, the Middle East is changing for really, really bad reasons and for really, really good reasons. And this book, Enemies and Allies, sort of takes you into that world and doesn't just give you facts. I'm telling stories and you're hearing these leaders, love them or hate them, you're hearing them in their own words answering our toughest questions. Do you think that things are you say things are getting better and getting worse now clearly as you as you've outlined you have states around that area seeming seemingly willing to make peace certainly with israel but as you say the palestinian question still looms large doesn't it as it always does in terms of relations between israel and the palestinians what are your 
hopes and also predictions. I mean, you you live out there in Jerusalem. You've done a lot of work in that area. Um, and it seems the whole world is is crying out for Israel and the Palestinians to make peace and do a deal. Are you optimistic about that? Is that is that is that any more likely than it was, say, 10 years ago? It's a, it's a tough question to answer, Sam. Um, let me make a couple quick points and then you can pull on that thread if you'd like. One, by being a follower of Jesus, an Israeli citizen, two sons who've served in the Israeli army, living in Jerusalem, we've worked very hard as a family uh, to get to know our Palestinian Christian evangelical brothers and sisters, as well as Palestinian Muslims. Um, even though we're going to disagree on things, and maybe them more passionately disagreeing with us on things than we um, we disagree, but we don't feel so passionate. Like we we genuinely want to hear what they think and and how can we serve our Christian brothers and sisters? And then how can we get to know our, our Muslim uh, uh, friends or at least their neighbors, even if they totally disagree with us on things? That's been fascinating. Uh, that, 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 that could be a book unto itself. I do talk about it and, and go into it. But so that's one thing is just listening and trying to learn and show empathy, you know, just because you love Israel doesn't mean you have to hate Palestinians. I think too but many. I think that's a very divided on that issue. I think that's a very key point, though, because so often when I think about people I know who are evangelical Christians, I know evangelical Christians who are very strongly pro-Israel. I know evangelical Christians who are very strongly pro-Palestinian, and sometimes I wonder, is is that helpful? I mean, especially when my friends live in the UK or US and arguably shouting from the sidelines a little bit or campaigning for their side. Sometimes I wonder, does that does that help? Does that help move anyone forward? What you're talking about is something quite different. You're talking about living in the area, befriending neighbours who should technically be enemies, but actually making the effort to spend time, even with Christians who hold very different political views. That, to me, sounds like a much better way forward than Christians in the West shouting from the sidelines, defending their side. Uh, yeah, but I don't think you have to live in Jerusalem or in the region to do it. I, um, we, you know, 15 years ago, my wife and I founded a ministry called the Joshua Fund. Uh, short version, it's like a, a, a venture capital firm or let's say a mutual fund to invest in the churches, the ministries, the leaders in Israel, in the Palestinian territories, and in five neighboring Arab countries, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. But we've been trying not only to invest in the, our brothers and sisters in these areas and pray for them, but my role, my, aside from you know helping to raise funds or whatever, is, is to educate Christians all over the planet, what is God's heart? And what we keep saying is God is not either or. Yes, he, God is, in the Bible, is, it says it's a unique role for Jewish people and a unique place for Israel. That is true. And, and, and it does us no good to say to our Arab or Muslim friends or whatever that that's not true, especially our Arab Christian friends, that, that, that God doesn't really love Israel, doesn't really have a plan. He does. But that doesn't, that's not a zero-sum game. God is not an either-or God. He's a both-and God. The gospel is that you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first, yes, uh, but also for the Greek, or in this case, extrapolate that out into the Gentiles. So God loves both, and we're, we as the church are supposed to love both, and the Joshua Fund invests in both, and we educate people to do it, but we do find that challenge. 
and part of it is, you know, the church for much of the last 1900 years ignored the Jews or, or completely mistreated the Jews. Um, it, was a, it's a, it was a bad story uh, and ignored Muslims almost entirely. Um, so the good news is post-1948, post-World War II, post-Holocaust, Christians have really thought, oh my gosh, we, we blew it. And we have got to rediscover the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We need to understand God does love Jews. We need to love Jews. He has a plan for Israel. But I think many Christians stopped there. And 9-11 made it even harder, as well as other Arab-Israeli wars and other U.S. Uh, wars in the Middle East, made it harder in certain ways to love and have compassion for Arabs, and not just Arabs. There's many ethnic groups, Persians and Kurds and, and Druze and others throughout the region. But the point is to help Christians love both, understand both, and the good, the bad, and the ugly of both, but but to but to but to counter this idea that God is tribal and has chosen his tribe and is against every other tribe. That's not true. It wasn't true in the time of Jesus when he went up into Lebanon to minister. The news about him spreads all through Syria. He crosses the Jordan River into Jordan. And in fact, when one of the men he he, he liberates from, from demon possession in what we would now call the kingdom of Jordan, right? The guy says, I want to follow you and come back into Israel with you and be with you and follow you. And he says, no, you would think, wouldn't you want him to follow you? No. He, he said, go tell your people what I've done for you, what God has done for you. That requires a broader understanding of the whole gospel. And what's so been, so interesting is for God to oh, crazy open up these doors for me to go spend all this time with Arab leaders and then write this book. I mean, I know it's part of my agenda, admittedly, to tell these stories, not because you're going to end up agreeing with everything that the king of Jordan or the crown prince of Saudi Arabia or wherever, what they believe and say. But you're going to realize if I have to choose between radical Islam and a moderate, from a foreign policy perspective, I should support the moderate. Now, from the gospel side, God is drawing more Muslims in radical Islamist countries to, to the Lord than in the moderate countries. Right? More Iranians are coming to faith in Jesus and leaving Islam than in Jordan or Morocco, where things are calm and friendly and peaceful. So anyway, that's a lot. I'm giving you a, a, a long answer, and I, I, I apologize. It's a, it's a very interesting question that you're asking, and I need to learn to give a more concise answer, I guess. Uh, to be fair, I think it's completely unfair for any journalist to expect a short, concise answer to any question about Middle Eastern politics. There's no need to apologize. <laughs> I mean um, that. Um, yeah, and I think maybe that's I mean, maybe that's part of the problem where people think there are quick, easy fixes when sometimes there aren't their complicated issues. There are simple principles that that uh, that are scriptural um, and that and that comport with history and so forth. Um, and and the issue of Palestinians in particular, look, Christians will have many views about how to solve the problem, but and others will be like, I have no idea how to solve. The the key is not trying to solve it right now as a follower of Christ, but of showing compassion to Palestinians who are the most among the most suffering people on the planet, the most dejected, the most rejected. Now, some of that's for their own reasons of their own, you know, leaders who who have you know made the brand of Palestinian a terrorist brand or a rejectionist brand, rejecting every peace deal that's been offered to them. 
But as followers of Christ, we ought to be leaning forward and saying, God loves the Palestinian people. Um, and sometimes that means I'm not going to get into the statecraft. Sometimes, you know, maybe we ought to just love them for them. They're in, you know, they're poor, they're, but they're incredibly well-educated and, and, and entrepreneurial. And any Palestinian that gets out into any, almost any other part of the world and has freedom, I don't mean a refugee camp in, in Lebanon or in Syria or whatever, but if you get out, if a Palestinian gets out in the world uh, and has freedom and opportunity, they become incredibly successful. And they're, they're incredibly bright. They're incredibly gifted. They're lovely, beautiful people. There's a very painful conflict. The question is, they mostly feel wounded. These are like the Jews, Israelis, and Palestinians are like battered wives. They're like, they're like traumatized, battered children. They, and I don't mean as a pejorative, I, I mean, they see themselves as as beaten as, as from the Holocaust, from war, from trauma, from rejection, they feel very wounded and they're not easily willing to make concessions to the other when they fear that their whole society, their whole culture could get wiped out as a result. The church doesn't need to feel wounded. We understand what it means to follow a suffering servant, but, but he tells us to show compassion. And if we do that, it doesn't mean we have to surrender what we believe about God's plan for Israel or something, but we just have to have a tender heart and speak the truth in love and maybe not focus on, on map lines rather than how can we provide humanitarian relief? How can we pray for our brothers and sisters? How can we give dignity, at least to the Palestinian Christians that live there? I'm trying. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm sure there's people that criticize what I'm doing. I know there are. But I think but I'm encouraged the, by the process. But I think I think what you've just outlined as to how Christians should engage with this, I think everyone would say fantastic. Isn't the problem that when most people think about how evangelical Christians engage with the Middle East, it's not one of peacemaking and of love. When most people think about that, they think angry people on Facebook being anti-Arab and and not no. showing love towards the other. You're absolutely right, Sam. And that's what makes enemies and allies even more stunning that all not just Arab Christians in these other countries would invite me. They didn't. The Arab Muslim leaders invited me. And as they did, we reached out to the Arab Christian communities in these countries and said, we're coming at the invitation of your king, your president. We'd like to spend time with you and listen. Just tell us how can we pray for you? What's your life like? We won't have any government people in the room. We just want to hear and 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 build a, build bridges of friendship and relationship. But therefore, I have this responsibility to tell this story and to say to the church worldwide, something interesting is happening. And we ought to understand it better. Let me tell you some of the stories, not just facts. There's a lot of facts in the book. But let me tell you some of the stories. Let, let it come alive. And President El-Sisi of Egypt invited me to bring a delegation to attend the opening of the largest church ever built in the history of the Middle East that he, the president of Egypt, was going to give as a gift to the Christians of his country on Christmas Eve. What is going on? Like, there are some countries that don't have any churches in the Middle East. And here's an Arab Muslim, a devout Muslim, building the largest church in the history of the Middle East and giving it to Christians on Christmas Eve. 
that comes just a few years after ISIS was waging genocide against Christians and or as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was burning down the churches and slaughtering, uh, beheading Christians on the beaches of Libya. Like the world has just changed or is changing and, and, and most Christians don't know these stories. These days, you can't get a lot for your pound. You could get a pack of balloons. A DIY face mask. Ooh. Or some plasters. Ouch. Or one pound could get you great reporting, brilliant interviews, and loads of Christian news articles, all in Premier Christianity. In print, online, and on the app. For just one pound a month in the Summer Sale Limited Offer. Get yours at premierchristianity.com. Well, you mentioned um, earlier that the Afghanistan obviously is most prominently in the news right now. I'm sure in, in both of our nations, it's all across our, our headlines, what's what's going on. It's obviously, you should go without saying, it's incredibly dangerous to be a Christian in Afghanistan when the Taliban are ruling by Sharia law. We're already hearing stories of, of women being stopped in the street and told, why are you walking around without a male chaperone? And clearly things much worse than that are, are likely to happen. We just published a piece by someone who lived in Afghanistan. In fact, he was the first Westerner to live in Jalalabad. And this was 25 years ago. And he, he has stories of Christians literally being hanged for their faith because they refused to convert back to Islam. And I think, you know, Christians look at these stories and just think, well, what, you know, beyond, of course, praying, which is vitally important, what on earth can we do? And I think there is this, this feeling of, of collective really failure by the West in letting down these people who are now, it seems to many, trapped in a nation ruled in ruled by Sharia law, and that being terrible not just for Christians but for many other minorities as well in that nation right now. I have written a lot on all Arab news. We've been covering this story in Afghanistan for quite some time. Uh, I'll just say that I, I I did not support President Trump's decision to remove all U.S. troops out. Although uh, I appreciate that they were doing it in stages and reassessing at each moment, can the conditions withstand removing all? But I didn't believe from the beginning that you should remove all. We don't have all of our troops out of Jer Japan or Germany uh, or South Korea after all these years. Why? Because it's a stabilizing influence, and that's decades later. So, But it's easy for me to say my sons have served in the Israeli army, not the American or British army or NATO. So I, I get the reason why people wanted to pull out, but whether it's, but setting aside the, the statecraft for a moment, let's go back to the church. The church should never retreat. And when the world is abandoning a people, whether we just talked about the Palestinians, but as the world abandons, as NATO abandons the people of Afghanistan, after 20 years of telling us, telling them, We've got, we, we are going to set you free and we're going to help you. We can, we're not going to run your country, but we, we will help you be free against these radical, horrible people that are trying to kill you and destroy you and enslave you. When the world turns away, Christians should be going up the one-way street against traffic. Um, now, I, now, the G, now, Jesus in the scriptures, in the gospels, gives Christians every right to flee if they're under persecution. But sometimes he calls people to stay in persecution so they can be a light um, to people 
who are scared but don't know where they're going to go when they die, who don't have the hope of the gospel and of, of the wisdom of God in their own lives. And, and so, so I, I don't want it to be misread that I'm saying that all Afghani or Af- Afghan Christians should stay, but those who do, we need to strengthen. We need to make sure they we are praying for them, that we are funding them, that we are encouraging them, that we are telling their story. And I would I would argue that that most of the church worldwide has a very weak view of prayer. And so like that, that's like, oh well, we, what can we do beyond praying? And I'm, if we have a low view of the power of prayer and what we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters, that they have boldness, right? If you look at the, the believers in Acts under persecution, most times they don't say, oh, Lord, get us out. They say, Lord, give us courage, give us boldness to be your witnesses as you know, you see the threats. I think it's Acts chapter four is one of those moments. You see the threats being breathed against us. You see the danger we're in. Give us boldness because the world, because the people are watching the church. They watch the radicals, they watch the religious terrorists, and it's like a Wimbledon match. They watch watch the attack, and then they watch the response. And when they see response from followers of Christ who have a peace that passes all understanding, they have hope in the midst of hopelessness. And when it doesn't make any sense, a non-follower of Jesus who doesn't get it, but sees something in the eye, in the heart, in the attitude, in the actions of the follower of Christ and goes, what is going on? What do you have that I don't have? This is what starts to move people to say, I want what you have. One quick example outside of the world of Islam, look at China. When the communists took over and drove all the missionaries out of China and essentially burned the church down, they had very few followers of Jesus Christ left. I mean, by our standards, maybe it's a lot, 250,000 maybe, but by, by Israeli standards, that's a lot of followers of Jesus by Chinese standards, 250, 250,000, not a lot. But where are we today? We're at somewhere around 100 million followers of Jesus. Why? Because they're preaching the prosperity gospel, because they're telling everybody, if you believe in Jesus, you'll get a, a Learjet and a Rolex watch and your life will be better and you'll have a palace. No, no. People are, are they, they know Jesus and his hope and his peace in the midst of great hopelessness and their neighbors beg them, tell me what you have that I don't have. And often the Chinese Christian says, I can't. No, don't ask me. Why not? Because I don't want to put you in danger. What are you talking about? You have something I want. Yeah, but I don't want to get, you know, if you, like, if you have what I have, you could go to jail. You could lose your job. You could be beaten. You could be killed. What are you talking about? What is it that you have? Some secret drug, some secret book, some secret, what, what is it? Like, all right, I'll tell you, but your life could get worse. How could it get worse? My life is tor- terrible, but you have hope. You have peace. And so the, the Christian uh, Chinese person tells their neighbor, and that neighbor has to make a decision then, follow Jesus or not. And the 100 million have said yes. That is what we're talking about. Something is going on, and when the situation is more hopeless and the government's more horrible, sometimes that is often, actually, that's where God causes the church to grow. It was true in the Roman period. It's true in Iran right now. It's true in China. Not true in America. Right now, the church is very weak, 
And uh, even though we've had a lot of freedom and opportunity and prosperity, but the church, there's a remnant that's strong, but the church is overall very weak. I remember actually uh, talking again of, of this 9-11 anniversary coming up. It does remind me of something Pastor Tim Keller said, who's ministered in New York for many years. He said that previous to 9-11, people were doing well, you know, family, job, promotion. He said there wasn't much spiritual openness at all, but he said the Sunday after 9-11, every church in New York was packed. And it's exactly what you're saying, that when there is oppression, when there is real difficulty, when there's persecution, it does seem like that starts to make people wonder what is life all about. And there seems to be greater openness to the gospel when life is going badly rather than when life is going well. Thought too, uh, uh, like uh, World War II, um, the church was pretty weak during that period in, in Great Britain. But as you came out of the trauma and Billy Graham and others started preaching the gospel, many Brits responded during that period. Now, if you look at the church in in Great Britain or the United States today, even after 9-11, yeah, that's true. But then after time, as things got better, people turn away again. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of our countries. And Corona is causing people again to reevaluate life, death, my day-to-day, and where am I going when I die? Um, When God puts us in a crucible and makes us ask the most fundamental questions of life, then we start to see the church, um, if it will stand in a healthy, godly way, we can be the emergency room that people will come to uh, in the midst of their own Yes. Emotional and spiritual traumas. And, and just, just on that as well, on a s- similar vein, I wanted to talk a little bit about the growth in Messianic Judaism. So for those, sure. those who don't know, these are Jewish people like yourself who have accepted Jesus. And s- some of those folk would prefer actually not to take the term Christian. And we don't have to go into all the reasons for that. But nevertheless, the point is that since the time you became a Christian until today, there has been this huge explosion. I mean, even before that, you go back to when Israel first became a nation, the idea of Messianic Judaism was pretty unheard of, wasn't it? Whereas now it is this kind of global movement and it's a recognized move of the number of Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, as their Messiah. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that because you'll know the numbers on this of of how this has been a phenomenal growth. But I also wanted to bring in Bible prophecy because this is something that you're known for in your work and looking at. And so really two questions. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about the growth of Messianic Judaism in recent decades? And secondly, I suppose, do you see that in any way as a fulfillment of any parts of biblical prophecy that we're seeing that movement today? Yeah, good question, Sam. Yes, huge growth, huge growth. Um, In 1948, um, in Israel, based on a study by the Israel College of the Bible, which is the premier uh, uh, institution uh, of of, uh, biblical education in Israel, uh, there were 23 known followers of Jesus who were Jewish in Israel in 1948. 23, okay? Uh, Now, there are about 30,000. So, In 75-ish years, we've seen uh, growth um, of well over a thousand percent. Wonderful. That's not, you know, in a a country of, you know, six and a half million Jewish people, 30,000 is not that much. But again, if you look on the the, the sense that it is growing, it's encouraging, right? Um, Even more than that is the number of Jews in Israel that are open to listening to the gospel and considering Jesus for the first time. 
Israel College of the Bible has a ministry where they create um, videos of Jewish people who've come to faith in Jesus. And they're like five, six, seven minute videos. There are testimonies, people saying, why did they make the decision and how has it changed them? These Hebrew language videos, not just the English ones, just the Hebrew ones have been seen 34 million times. Now that means multiple Hebrew speakers are watching many of them. There's, there's dozens and dozens of them. So it doesn't mean everybody in Israel's watched them, but many have watched many. So what you're, what the, that point is telling us there are people, even if they haven't made the decision, they are considering the fact that Jesus might be the Messiah. And look, look at all these Israelis, Hebrew speakers that have made this decision. How is that possible? That's exciting. Okay. Um, and the Joshua Fund, we help fund projects like that. Now, worldwide, um, we maybe there were 2,000 followers of Jesus among the Jews back in the 60s. Maybe. Best we can tell. But today, there are about a million. And a Joshua Fund project that we helped fund a study, a, 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 an actual scientific study, um, just a couple of years ago, found that there were 871,000 Jewish followers of Jesus just in the United States alone, 871,000. So when you add up everybody in Europe and Israel and Latin America, we're at about a million. When in, in now, when you look at a world of about 17, 16 or 17 million Jews worldwide, 1 million Jewish followers of Jesus, most people in missions or in churches, they, they have not heard that number. And it's stunning, but what does it tell us? It tells us that the Bible prophecies are coming true, that as we get closer to the return of Christ, we are heading towards a Romans 11.26 world. What did Paul say in Romans 11.26? All Israel will get saved. Now, to be clear, Sam, I don't believe that means that every Jew on the planet is going to get saved. But, but that passage plus other passages tell us you'd be expecting as Israel is reborn as a country, Ezekiel 36, 37, you, you would be expecting Jews to be coming to faith in Jesus more and more as God pours out his Holy Spirit. That's what the prophets tell us, Ezekiel in particular. He says that Israel will be reborn physically as a country, and then chronologically, and then God will move his spirit and open the eyes of Jews, and more and more Jews will come to faith in Jesus. And so that's what we're seeing. Israel was reborn as a country, and there were almost no Jewish believers in Jesus on the planet or in Israel. But now those numbers are scaling up significantly. That's exciting. And part of my heart is, one, to let the church know this, because it's a, a wonderful evidence that the Bible is true. Most atheists think the Bible is, a, is completely ridiculous, but then why is there an Israel? Because Israel's the, the Bible is the only book in the world that tells us there will be an Israel again in the last days. It didn't happen for 1,900 years, but here it is. And the Jews streaming back to Israel to resettle and rebuilding the ancient ruins. These are all Bible prophecies that even the church fathers, many of them, uh, Augustine, Luther, they thought that was crazy. Those are metaphoric things that, that has nothing to do with real Jews and real geopolitical Israel. And Jews coming to faith in Jesus, even... Our church fathers thought that wasn't going to happen, or if it happened, it would happen like a thousand years from now. So these are things are, that are encouraging. 
not just in the reality, but also in their apologetics, as you tell people, you know, you may be an atheist or an agnostic, but how do you explain Israel? God said he would rebuild Israel one day, and there it is. How do you explain that if there is no God? I'm Sam Howes, and you have been listening to The Profile Podcast. Really hope you enjoyed that interview. There's loads more where that one came from. Over 200 interviews with different Christians from all walks of life available now on The Profile Podcast, and new ones coming each and every week. If you have been enjoying these interviews, we would so appreciate it if you could take just five seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. It helps other people to discover the show. So why not do that now? Give us a rating and a review, and we'll see you next time.